for our underground listeners and welcome to the fifth episode of this podcast. Sorry it's been such a long time for me to get this episode to you. Um, the last episode was of course published on the 12th of August 2016. It's been, uh, well it's almost two, two weeks shy of a, of a full year since I published the last episode. Um, I recorded my interview with Dr. Zara Dennis who is a friend of mine. She's a geophysicist back in September of 2016, so a month after I published the last episode. And uh, in the week after the interview, I realized that my own speech hadn't been recorded properly. And so it sounded like Zara was just doing a monologue for an hour or so. And uh, yeah, it didn't make for a very good interview. Um, so I was planning on re-recording all of my questions and uh, then sort of editing it back into around Zara's t uh, talking. Um, and then I was planning on publishing that. And that was um, the end of September. Uh, unfortunately, then I had uni exams and then I got scarlet fever and then Christmas happened. And then my grandfather got sick with, uh, well, he's, he's been sick for a very long time now, but uh, he got, he ended up in hospital and then he ended up staying with us for three months. And then I got back to uni and then uh, a week into uni, I got the flu and then I've been sick for three, for three months with the flu, which was not exactly the most fun I've ever had. Um, and, and then I ended up going to Tasmania to install a bunch of Aurora monitoring cameras. And, uh, I got back from Tasmania last week. So I figured now is a good time for me to get back into doing these podcasts. That said, it probably won't be a, a regular thing, uh, ever. Um, I'm just too busy with other consulting work and, and uni and, uh, indeed the, um, Aurora cameras, um, which I will talk about later. Um, not necessarily on this particular episode. So this episode is going to be no frills, bare bones, and just raw speech. Um, there is very little editing that's been done to this. You may have noticed that I haven't even bothered to put the background music in for the start of the show. I'd like to kick off this episode by mentioning the fantastic aurora that was seen throughout Tasmania on the evening of uh, Tuesday, the 25th of October. That's uh, roughly a week and a half ago now. This particular aurora was captured in quite a few excellent photos, um, some of which came to the attention of the news media, and in a lot of them even went viral on social media. Photographs taken by members of the Southern Hemisphere Aurora Group were published by the Australian newspaper, the Advocate newspaper in Tasmania, the Daily Mail newspaper in the United Kingdom, and our very own ABC. Unfortunately, one particular member of the news media decided to remove watermarks from and then subsequently publish members' photographs without giving due credit to the photographers involved. And I'm aware of at least two instances when people on social media reposted these photographs, also removing the watermarks and not crediting the original photographers. To say this is incredibly disappointing is an understatement. I contacted Eddie Kate, intellectual property rights solicitors, who I have worked with in the past, and I'm pleased to announce that Kate Ritchie, the director of Eddie Kate, will be joining me in the next episode of the Aurora Underground to discuss these matters further. If you have any particular questions you would like answered regarding your intellectual property rights as a photographer, please let me know no later than Tuesday 15th of August via the Southern Hemisphere Aurora Group on Facebook. I'd like to also give a special mention to Andrew Clapton, who managed to take a brilliant photograph showing the two main topics of this podcast, being auroras and cemeteries, uh, in the one photograph. Andrew was kind enough to allow me to use this photo uh, as the artwork for this podcast, so you should be able to see it if you're listening to this podcast via iTunes or a podcast app on a mobile device such as on, on an iPhone. 
this is a, a fantastic photo. You just have to see it. Um, it. It's literally just a few headstones in the foreground with an aurora in the background. It's uh, perfectly lit, in my opinion. Um, the colours are excellent. Uh, so, yeah, you, you've just got to check it out. So, yeah, th thank you very much to Andrew for allowing me to use this uh, very, very appropriate photograph for this, this podcast. Anyway, moving on to the main feature of the show. I first met Zara Dennis in 2011 when she was working on her PhD in geophysics. Her research developed new ways of locating gold buried underneath the Murray-Darling Basin. Zara also has a passion for flying and teaching, and she has combined her science background, her diploma of education, uh, years of teacher experience, and her pilot's license to create a rather unique offering. Zara now flies to remote schools around Australia, where she spreads her knowledge of STEM subjects. Zara, thank you for coming on the show. Where did you uh, grow up and what, what did you study at uni? So I grew up in Leeds in the north of England. Um, and then for uni, I I actually initially um, went to, did an equivalent of a vet course um, in Leeds in sport and exercise science. Um, wrapped that up, but still maintained that I really wanted to do a physics degree. Um, managed to get myself onto a foundation year um, at Salford University in Manchester. Um, the foundation year was kind of a reset of year 12. Um, I didn't do particularly well in chemistry or physics in year 12, and I didn't do maths. Um, more more a sort of a lack of guidance in many respects that that came about. Um, but the foundation year gave me that sort of second opportunity. Past that, um, went on to do my degree in physics with space technology, um, and then in finished that in 2006, and even after my poor year 12 results, I was actually ducks of my year at uni. Right, okay. Well, getting, um, before we even go on to, the, to my next question there, you, I, I, my ears were, were um, pricked up at the, the mention of, what was it, physics with space science? Physics with space technology. Space technology. Yeah. What, does, what, what space technology did you get into? Um, well, course, it I'm... was it was a basic physics degree, and then there was a couple of units um, each semester that we we could we could elect. So some people did physics and photonics, some people did physics with a foreign language, um, and physics with space technology was the option that I chose. Um, we did one of the, one of the um, sort of we did, robotics was one that we did do. Um, space communications and looking at satellite technology, but the one that always really stands out, um, the Star Chaser program, um, which is a English-run or English-based rocket program. Um, the guy who actually is the director of that was our lecturer for that course, and he actually I remember him bringing in an old Russian spacesuit, um, and this thing was tiny. And he offered to the class, like, you know, does anybody want to actually try this on? But we were all too big to get inside this tiny Russian spacesuit. Um, but that was absolutely fantastic because it was someone who was actually living and breathing in the space industry and was able to come in and actually be our lecturer for that. So, Right, okay. What um, did, I mean, did you get to do any sort of hands-on? Uh, um, you mentioned, for instance, um, space communications. Did you do anything in terms of antenna design or? or um, we didn't. The labs, the labs that we had were pretty standard scripted labs. Um, three hours each week, and then write it up. However, we did get the opportunity in second year, in place of a handful of weeks worth of lab, we could do a group project instead, um, which myself and two others took up. 
um, project we did, we were building, uh, it was an electromagnetic launcher, so it was basically a railgun. Um, we had to use capacitors in a, metal, in a coil to accelerate a metal slug down the length, length of the tube. Um, and as part of that, then we had to fit a method by which to record the speed that we had, or the muzzle velocity of the slug. Now, we were limited. We were told very strictly, you are not going to charge your capacitors over 40 watts. Um, so the little slugs would only fire about three metres absolute tops. Um, but on ours, we actually fitted a, a miniature light gate to it um, and then used some of the interfacing that we'd done in this, another module to actually put, hook it up to a computer and give us a printout of the actual speed of our little slug. I can't remember the speed off the top of my head, but it did fire about three metres. Right, okay. Well, three metres is still better than no, no metres at all. Well, so we were limited. We were tempted, oh, can we, can we charge this above 40 volts? No. Okay. <laughs> yes, it's a bit, bit limiting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so what did you do after uni? So you, you went to, it was University of Leeds, wasn't it? University of Salford. Sorry, yeah, Salford. Leeds, Leeds was my home city. Um, and then I crossed the hill to Manchester and went to Salford Uni. Well, what I did initially, what I was doing straight after, I, I actually finished my, my last exam was on a Wednesday and the following Monday I started work. Um, and that, so that was actually all set up before I'd even finished. But for my, for my final year project, sort of the English equivalent of doing your honours, um, I was working with a guy called Ray Davies um, in his laser lab and his little dog who was often sat on the bench looking at us who was called Heaney. Yes, he named his dog after a laser. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you'd be sat there, and it was a four-year project, and I actually built um, a, a small biped robot, um, sort of so put all the motors in for that and all the leverage, but it was actually activated by a laser, so you could shine a laser pen at it until it's got forwards, backwards, and then through the... Um, it, was all, it was all logic circuits. It was all just... It was all just logic gates, um, so all hand soldered, but shoot the laser at it and tell this little biped to go backwards, forwards. Now, unfortunately, by the time I actually finished building it, it was too heavy, um, and it had to kind of sit on a little jack because the motors that I'd used, um, the driving motors, were actually too heavy for its little perspex legs. But when you're limited in 12 months, you can't change, you don't have time to change the perspex for something a little bit stronger. But nonetheless, it proved of concept. Um, and through contacts with Ray, um, I got a job at a place called Laser Quantum, also in Manchester, building um, diode pump solid state lasers. Right, okay, so um, can you simplify that whole thing for me? So, Which solid, bit? Solid, solid state, what was it? Solid diode pump, DPSS lasers. Right. Diode pump solid state. So diode pump, um, the pump source for a laser could be a diode, a laser could be the pump for a bigger laser. So it's actually just where you get the light in initially. Um, solid state means that it's using YAG crystals, LBO crystals, as opposed to Heaney or any other gas. So the solid state just refers to it's using using crystals as opposed to a gas laser. Right. Um, and then the job was then to build the optical cavity. It was putting in the sequence of lenses and mirrors and, and the actual... Um, the doubling crystals and the pump medium, put those in, um, and then align it all so you got an accurate, an accurate beam, but also to customer specifications. So you'd have a full range of powers that customers would be asking for, depending on what the future applications were. Um, 
some of the applications um, right the way through from medical physics applications um, to I'm not sure if it's still the case but it certainly was when I was there that the light show on the Giza pyramids the lasers used for that were actually built at Laser Quantum Um, and they also were developing a laser to use in the head up display in the Eurofighter Right, okay, so there was quite a a diverse um, range of Specialised uses of these. Oh, yeah, lasers. absolutely. Right, okay. So these all went um, off the shelf mass produced lasers. So. That's it. I mean, we had we had standard designs, but each of the standard designs you could have a range of powers. Um, and you could also, I worked on a sort of a, a, a little bit of a project, an offshoot project, to cu- couple a fibre optic directly to the laser head. Customer requested that it was direct, directly into an optical fibre. So that was then just a process of changing the telescope lenses, so the final lenses on the output of the beam. So instead of having a nice round parallel beam, it would actually fire as accurately as possible into the end of a optical fiber. Right, and what, what was the purpose for that one? Um, honestly, I can't remember. Right. I just remember <laughs> spending many, many hours changing telescope lenses. Right. I imagine that would have been quite... Um... What's meticulous. Thing? Meticulous. That's it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so you, you, after the lasers, what did you do then? You, you, you was was that when you went straight into geophysics after that, or did you? Yeah. Do well, some training beforehand, or before before I started my physics degree, sort of, I guess a little bit of a lost period of, I'm not really sure I want to do this, but I think I want to do this, but I might look at geology as well because I'd been I'd always had an interest in earth science. Just as I always had an interest in space and physics, it was something that, that it had always been there. So it wasn't; it didn't come out of out of the blue. It was; it was, you know, I, I like this. I find this interesting. And as good as the job working as a laser engineer was, it was indoors every day, lab coat, goggles, kind of a orange tint to your world on a permanent basis, nine to five, unless you went to make a cup of tea. Um, and I kind of just was itching to do a bit more, get out of the lab. So, at first, I was hoping to push into doing research and development in photonics. Um, but as a as a um, graduate, even with first class honours, they really wanted somebody with a PhD before they'd let you go into R and D. Um, so that's what I did. I started looking at PhDs. Although looking at photonics PhDs, I found myself quite distracted looking at geophysics PhDs because of that element of you can go outside. It's bigger scale. It's your your lab instead of being lab coat, goggles, and gloves was a muddy you and your boots. Um, <laughs> it was it, it was different. It was still physics. It was still you know cutting edge technology and pushing the boundaries. But it was just completely different, and it really appealed to me. So started looking at different PhDs. Shot out a few inquiry emails, um, and it actually came down to ANU in Canberra, Adelaide, or Melbourne. Um, a few more real emails back and forwards with prospective supervisors. Um, Adelaide and Monash then became the two that particularly stood out. And the reason I chose Monash over Adelaide was actually as simple as my to-be supervisor replied quicker than the guy in Adelaide. That was it. That was <laughs> that was the reason why I took it, because it was just like, yes, I want to do it. And the projects were actually very, very similar. So similar, in fact, I actually ended up doing some work at Adelaide with the guy who would have been my supervisor in Adelaide and co-authored a paper with one of his postdoc students. Right. So 
you know, you can sort of say it was a decision well made and they probably ended up doing almost exactly the same thing, just in Melbourne rather than Adelaide. Still ended up doing some work in Adelaide and no regrets. Right, okay. How did you find... Um, or could, could, could you give us some advice for potential PhD students? Like, what, what's what's a good... Um, Don't be scared of it. Thing, like, thing to, in terms of specifically, like, um, finding a good supervisor. What, um, well, first of all, if you're thinking about doing a PhD, don't be scared of it. If you've survived undergrad and done well in undergrad, PhDs, I say easy loosely, but it is <laughs> easy in terms of what you have to know. Because at undergrad, you've got to memorise everything for an exam. Whereas in a PhD, if you can't quite remember what that formula is, grab the book off the, text, off the shelf, ask your supervisor, Google it. You know, those things are not a hindrance to a PhD. But what you do need for a PhD is self-motivation and massive perseverance skills because that's what keeps you going. Sometimes it you'll spend a week trying to run the same iteration through on a modelling software and it just won't do it. It just won't work and you're just banging your head against the wall and you just got to keep going. You can't stop. And that's, that's where the key is to doing a PhD. But in terms of what you actually cognitively need to do, Personally, I'd say it's much easier than your undergrad because you're not forced to that memorisation. Yes, you need a bit of work stuff out and yes, you have to understand it, but it's very, very different. So don't be scared of it. And in terms of choosing a supervisor, you know, if you're going to do a PhD at the, at the university you're already at, you're going to know the guys who, who are potentially going to be your supervisors. Honestly, pick one who you get on with. You have to work with them a lot. And if you're going to be butting heads from the outset, it ain't going to be an enjoyable PhD. No, probably not. No, <laughs> uh, it, it's interesting what you've said about you, you chose Monash over Adelaide, um, simply because uh, the person responded quickly. Yeah, um, I suppose that that, that sort of uh, gives you a good indication as to what the relationship is going to be like in, in the long term over the PhD. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, especially with something like geophysics, though, often potential supervisors will be out in the field and just can't respond for two weeks because they're not near any kind of phone or Wi-Fi signal. So you've got to always remember that with any kind of earth science. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're only talking a couple of days between the difference in response rate, but being over in the UK, got my heart set on this is what I wanted to do. I just jumped at the first opportunity. So throughout your PhD, uh, well, in, in 2010, we um, met and we, 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 I was working on my second commercial uh, cemetery job in, yep. in, um, in Ballarat, or near Ballarat. I'm not going to disclose the exact site location. But, um, and that was, it was um, well, we, we spent a good... It was a full week, yeah, full weekend. Full weekend, yeah, yeah for field work, um, walking up and down this uh, flat bit of, of grass in the cemetery trying to find bodies. and um, In the bitterly cold wind. It was, it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was the coldest place that I've ever worked at. Um, <laughs> thankfully... Although, the, um, on the flip side, there's been some awfully hot places that I've worked to. Uh, I imagine, how, how was your field work in terms of weather? Um, I think the one that always, or oh, the two that stick out, again, funnily enough, up in North Victoria, so more around Bendigo than Ballarat, but still, you know, in that kind of area, the rain. Hmm. And the trying to do field work, and sitting, sitting, having your evening meal, looking out the window, and thinking, please stop, because otherwise I'm not going to be getting the ute down the tracks, because they're, just, they're, they're on sealed roads, and 
you know, once the mud hits, you just can't get down there four-wheel drives or not. They just spin out. So, yeah, the, the, the rain in North Victoria, and I did some work up in parks in New South Wales for North Parks Mines, um, helping them on a magnetotelluric survey, um, just working as a fieldie, but then I also went back in and presented to some of the, um, to the, some of the geophysics staff working out the mine because they they had contracted doing the survey, um, and it was so humid. Yeah. It was absolutely <laughs> dripping the humidity, and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily that hot. It was just wet, and yeah, that was that that one sticks out in memory as well. Just challenging conditions. Yeah. Um, then another field survey. I spent a week down in Latrobe Valley um, again with another contractor, um, digging holes for MT. Um, and the weather was blissful. It was sort of, you know, mid to high 20s, dry and sunny. And, you know, you don't really get much better than that, to be honest. Right. Okay. Not feel like. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so just, just going back a bit, you mentioned um, MT and Magneto Tellurus. Um, yes. Yeah, they're, of course, the same thing. Could you just give us a, a brief rundown on what, what... So my PhD um, was electromagnetic geophysical methods, of which... MT or magnetic telluric is, and the other method I was using was transient electromagnetics or TEM. Um, MT is a method that utilizes natural fluctuations in the Earth's magnetic field um, and m- measures these fluctuations at the surface using long electrodes, um, two, two orthogonal um, wires which measure the ch- changes in the magnetic field, and then coils to measure on three axis coils to measure the electric field changes. So leave these you dig these you dig these in so that they're a little bit more resistant to any vibrations, for example, from wind. Or on occasion when you come back to your site in the morning and there's a small calf laying on top of your electrode. <laughs> um th- these things happen. Uh, challenges of field work. Um but yeah so you dig them in, um, leave them out overnight and the equipment monitors any fluctuations in Earth's magnetic field. And what these fluctuations tell you is the electrical structure of the ground underneath. Um, is it resistive? Is it conductive? So, for example, if you're sitting on top of a granite outcrop, the rock is... The rock, large crystals, doesn't hold a lot of water. It's very, very resistive. Whereas if you're sitting on top of a sedimentary basin and it's been raining, um, and just in general porous rocks like sediments they will hold a lot of water um, much more conductive and depending on what you're looking for so for example I was looking at crustal structure so looking for fault zones and things like that fault zones will typically trap water so you get a conductive response map your fault zone in that method and MT is pretty much the only geophysical method other than seismic that can actually get down to mantle depths Right, okay. um, the cool thing about magnetotellurics is that unlike seismic, once seismic hits the moho or where the rocks go gooey, um, you don't get there's no reflection boundaries. So anything below that you can't pick up with seismic, it just turns to white noise if you like. But with magnetotellurics, it can still it's still picking up differences in conductivity. So a hot spot, for example, um, will show hot rocks conduct better than cold the cooler rocks. So it'll show up as a conductor in, on your 2D cross-section when you process the data. Right, okay, so this is looking at or imaging the regions within the mantle itself rather than 
Yeah, so upper, upper, upper mantle. Upper mantle. Okay. Um, so you may be talking down about 50k, 60k depth at right, tops. Okay. Um, below that, it's it's unreliable. But certainly that's that's deep enough to pick up things, things such as mantle plumes. Um, and it's actually published in one of my papers. Um, now I was looking specifically at crustal structure, so we didn't investigate this any further. But it does look like there is a potential hotspot or mantle plume sitting on your Gippsland. Right, so what is in depth is a mantle plume? So a mantle plume is um, an area of... Well, basically, it's a it's an isolated region where the heat and the, the hot rocks from underneath are coming closer to the surface. Um, it's still it's still well underneath, but it does look very like there is there is this hot spot region in sort of around the Gippsland region, which is interesting when you think this is where we've been having all the shallow earthquakes. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was about to follow that up with, you know, is this a precursor to potential tectonic activity or volcanic activity? Or? Possibly, and if you think how recent, um, the so the new the newer volcanics province of Victoria, so out towards Geelong and Colac, that's, that basalt that covers that area is quite new. It's, it's a few thousand years, which in geological terms is, it's a baby. If you go all the way around to Mount Gambia and Mount Shank, technically... That area is still dormant. It's it it, it erupted from memory. I think it was about five thousand years ago, Mount Shank, um, which, say in geological terms, is, is very very recent. So it's not unreasonable to think that around this area there could still be some potential tectonic activity or volcanic activity. Yeah, yeah. Although the um, further east is is it's um, older than. Yeah, uh, yeah, abs- way, absolutely. Because yeah. the further east you go into the um, Lachlan origin or the Great Dividing Range, and the, the thrust from that. Yeah, yeah. So your PhD, talk us through that. What, what exactly were you were you researching? What were you um, so we've we've talked about MT. The other method I was using was TEM, transient electromagnetics, um, and that's a method that which is much which resolves information or resolves structure much closer to the surface. So MT, your top 100 metres or so, it, it's not reliable, it, it doesn't resolve that shallow. So instead, um, if you use TEM, you can pick up the information in that top section and then stitch the two data sets together. Um, and a big part of what I was doing was, was that stitching. Sometimes with MT, if you've got a a very resistive or a very conductive, particularly a conductive overburden, so wet sediments, um, for example, the Murray-Darling Basin, perfect example, that it can actually distort your data. It can make it look deeper or shallower than it actually is just because you don't know what exactly what's in that top 100 metres and what it's actually doing to it. So by doing taking TEM soundings, um, which again is an electromagnetic method, gives you the rock conductivity structure, you can stitch them together and then actually make a more accurate cross-section. TEM, it's a much simpler system. Um, works, basically you drag out a wire loop, 50, 50 or 100 metre wire loop, um, typical. Um, put a really, uh, put a large um, electrical current through it. Um, at one stage we were putting two amps through it, so we had like six or seven car batteries wired up in series pumping current through this thing. Um, in, in the rain, of course. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> in the drizzle. The, 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 the good old Heathcote fault drizzle. Um, but yeah, so 
um, pumping high current through a wire loop, sets up an axial magnetic field. You abruptly shut the current off, that magnetic field decays. Um, it's, it's, it's year 12 physics, it's Faraday's and Lenz's law, the principle behind um, TEM. As that magnetic field decays, the ground tries to maintain it. Um, the more conductive the ground, the better it can maintain that magnetic field and the longer it sticks around. So the decay rate of that magnetic field tells you, again, directly under that point that you're surveying, how conductive the ground is. The quicker it decays, the more resistive it is. And then again, you can take either a line or a grid of soundings and then stitch these together to produce a cross-section. Right, okay. And what were you doing for your particular research? So it was was, um, delineating crystal structure for potential gold mineralisation zones. So we know that there's gold around Bendigo, Ballarat, um, but if you look, if you look at a map of where the mineralisation zones occur, they're full of fault lines up, or old fault lines up through the state. Um, but then, as you get further north, it all disappears and dips down underneath newer sediments from the Murray Basin that's been deposited on top of the structure. The, sus- the suspicion is that if you go further north, there's more gold up there. It's just going to the geology just falls through. But you can't see it at the surface through traditional ge- geology survey methods with a you know your rock hammer and taking rock samples. So that's why geophysics comes in that you can see through that top layer and actually look at where could and identify a potential drill target. Right. Okay. So what what exactly did you find? Um. Certainly, those faults do definitely do look like they continue. That's fairly certain. Um. In terms of actual drill targets, the only the only one that I think. It has potentially that um, Geoscience Victoria, or what they become known as now? Oh, well, what was what was Geoscience Victoria um, showed a lot of interest um, at a conductor that uh, that was on the Heathcote Fault or the Mount Camel Range, the sort of bridge of hills that runs up centrally through Victoria. Um, they'd had they'd previously done a helicopter borne TEM survey across there. And I was doing a ground one to sort of confirm the airborne data. And just, you know, we sort of picked an area where we'd do a little bit higher resolution. And it appeared that there was a conductor of a strike length of at least 50 to 100 metres underneath this this ridge. Now, it was very shallow, maybe 20, 30 metres deep. So it's very unlikely to be mineralisation, but even if that's a trapped aquifer, it's still got a lot of potential, certainly for landholders in the area. So, right, okay. So this this methodology obviously has some um, good uh, potential use for groundwater surveys. Then, yeah, definitely. Right, okay. Definitely, TEM very can be very very valuable because the resolution depths are between ten and ten to fifty, ten to hundred, depending on the ground and the equipment you have. Um, it's exactly the depths that groundwater will tend to sit at, and groundwater, it's, you know, very saline, very conductive, and shows up very cleanly and very easily using TEM. Right. Okay. Sounds like it's uh, well, it's 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 one that's going to be very useful in the coming years with our worsening climate. Yeah, absolutely. I know that certainly up at Broken Hill, um, they they're using a gravity survey at the moment. Um, really. Gravity. Yeah, gravity survey. Okay, I would have thought that would so, take a lot longer than TEM. Yeah, but that's that's the gear they've got. Um, but they exactly that is groundwater is exactly what they're trying to survey up there and okay. find out because obviously Broken Hill its location it gets a bit dry up there. Yep. 
<laughs> Unless you're trying to go to bird ball races a couple of weeks ago, in which case there was that much water nobody could get in or out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and normally, normally that's when you, of course, um, have your field work booked in. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's, it. You're trying to get up there, and then the weather decides yeah, I'm not going anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so after your, your your PhD, you submitted that in, in 2011, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. submitted that 2011, and it was actually it was kind of cool. Um, I got I actually got the email confirming my PhD two weeks before my 30th birthday, so that was a good birthday Ooh. present. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I submitted it, and and then. You know, what do you do whilst it's being marked? You know, on, on average, it can take anything from three to six months to mark a PhD. That's completely normal. So I'd been doing a little bit of casual work as a, as a de- as an undergraduate demonstrator, so helping out in first-year labs, and also at the Victorian Space Science Education Centre out at Strathmore. Um, and I really enjoyed being there. So I was like, well, okay, I've got, you know, five to six months of trying to fill time, you know, could put out a few more papers, but there was already five papers embedded within my thesis, so there wasn't much more that I could actually pull out from that with what I already had without doing further research. Um, so I took a full-time position um, as a science educator at the Space Science Centre, um, at VSEC, because uh, I just discovered that I really enjoy it, that all of this science information that was trapped in my brain, I had an audience to share it with. Hmm. Enthusiastic teenagers that wanted to learn more. Um, you, mean, you mean the ones that were dragged along? <laughs> I didn't drag them. They, they went willingly and then stayed and listened to me. <laughs> but yeah, so, and I actually found that I really, really enjoyed educating or teaching. Um, and for anybody else that's working in geoscience, I'm sure you're aware that, you know, work can be unreliable at times. Hmm. Um I say Geoscience Victoria, I believe, ceased to exist shortly after, or certainly exist in the form it did exist whilst I was doing my PhD. There was some significant changes happened. And we just couldn't find reliable work um, in geophysics in using my PhD. But I'd fallen into this position where I was, you know, I, I was effectively teaching and really enjoying it. So I decided that's what I did. Um, got my thesis. PhD check and enrolled to do a dip ed, so the one year teaching degree or one year teaching diploma um, as a science and physics teacher. Um, wrapped that up, did pretty well in that as well. Um, and I say it was it was a little bit different because I'd already had, if you like, five months teaching experience, although or I was an educator as opposed to a teacher, uh, but still had five months experience standing in front of a class. Um, and bouncing around, enthusing them, and being all nerdy and enjoying it. Um, so continued that through, and then took a, took a full time teaching role, which I'd been doing then for the past three years. Right. Okay. So you completely um, moved away from geophysics. You didn't do any more geophysics surveys. After um, no, not for not for no, <laughs> pretty much. Right. Um, there was a few bits. There's sort of you know the odd the odd conversations. Um, sort of advising on potential potential projects. But the work just wasn't there reliably and I'd found something that I was enjoying doing, so Why not go for it? Yeah, why not exactly, yeah, why exactly. not? Okay. Okay, so after the three years of teaching, you uh, then decided you wanted to break off and do your own uh, flying teaching 
program. Walk, walk us through that. Yeah, so, um, some, again, flying was something that I'd always wanted to do since I was a kid. Um, I remember when, when I was doing my undergraduate degree at Salford, um, one of my friends, one of my good friends there, she was dead set. She was going to be an airline pilot. Um, that's all she talked about all the way through her degree. Um, we actually also had a lecturer who flew light aircraft. But it had been, it was something that had been in my head pretty much forever. It's just like, one day, you know, when I retire, I'm going to learn to fly. But well, when you retire, it's kind of a bit late, I guess, in some respects. Um, and the opportunities in Australia are so many more, so much more than what's in the UK for that kind of thing. And so coming here in many ways sort of did open up that doorway for me as well. Um, I actually, I'd actually taken a group of students to China on the Victorian Young Leaders to China program for six weeks. Um, so I became surrogate mum to eight teenagers for six weeks. Um, amazing experience, so many challenges, but an absolutely fantastic experience for all of us involved. Um, and when we came back as, as a thank you, the parents of the girls who I took um, clubbed together and got me a voucher to go for an aerobatic flight in a old Tiger Moth biplane. Um, well, you know, you think they knew me or something. It was absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Um, but that took me up to Lillardale Airport. And whilst I was up there, had the Tiger Moth flight, had an awesome time, um, got photographs of me upside down in this open cockpit, and wandered across to the flying school just to have a look, and picked up one of their vouchers for their trial introductory flights. Oh, this is a good idea. I'm going to do this. Booked it, because it was, you know, it was going into the, so it was in the summer holidays at this point, so plenty of, well, more free time than during term time. Um, and then kind of never left. So that was, I did my, I did my trial introductory flight in January last year, so January 2015. Um, end of last year I got my recreational license and then I went a little bit crazy this year and I got my private, full private license about two weeks ago right okay uh, but yeah so how, how that all connects so that's how I ended up you know sort of just taking the opportunity of something that I've been interested in doing for a long time but now with a PhD and a teaching qualification and a pilot's license I wanted to do all three I didn't want to just do one of them. I wanted to do all three, and well, that job didn't exist, so I decided to create one. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, at the time when I, when the idea first sort of first came to mind, I asked a couple of close friends. This is like, um, so I've got this idea. Like, is is this like ridiculous, or is this actually something that you know you could conceivably see me doing? And they're like, no, actually, you're not crazy. That's a really good idea. And the idea being that with my experience as a teacher and also my experience as a scientist to get in my little aircraft and fly out to rural Australian communities and take some of the, the whiz-bang stuff that outreach companies will do for Melbourne Metro but take it out to those rural communities where they wouldn't normally get those opportunities. So that was the idea. The idea seeded itself and at the start of this year for the first half of this year I was working as a research assistant um, actually in science ed science education research so it was a, it, actually that in itself was a, a bit of a good overlap um, as I was just sort of continuing through and getting my private license and went for a coffee as as you do as all good researchers and teachers and pilots do um, went for a coffee 
and bumped into the director of PrimeSight, which is an outrage company based at Monash. Mentioned this idea to to the director, and she jumped on it. She was just kind of like, "You, me, we need to have a chat in my office. This is this is awesome. This is you've really really hit on something here." And that's where it started. And um, PrimeSight being the sort of parent company initially, um, then FlySci was spawned from that. Um, so that's what that's where FlySci came from. It was an offshoot from PrimeSci, um, and then had then chatting with um, the director of the Growing Tall Poppies program, who were based out at Melbourne Uni. I was actually um, one of the inaugural teacher winners of that award last year, so I knew the director through that and mentioned it to her, and then this fantastic partnership then formed between the director of PrimeSci, the director of growing tall poppies and me with my crazy idea <laughs> <laughs> so what, what um have you, well, have you, have you started actually um, teaching we've, doing demonstrations we have done a few they've been they've been in melbourne um well one of them was running geelong but still i, I drove i didn't fly um i only actually got my four wings i say my paperwork came through last week literally um, so I've not had the opportunity to actually fly out, um, and obviously that part of it is going to take a lot more organisation. But proof of concept, there's nothing. You know, we're not going to exclude Melbourne Metro. So proof of concept, we're doing things locally. Um, Run at Geelong, and during the holidays, the school holidays, you know, the, the next couple of weeks, doing a program um, at Lilydale Flying School, um, one out at Clayton Library, playing with drones in the second week. Um, so yeah, it's it's coming together. It's coming together slowly, but you know we're even looking at things like putting together teacher PDs and some of the crazy things I got up up to in my own classroom labs. Um, how to you know how to implement that. One of the things one of the things my students would say was how I will randomly just pick up any object and it suddenly becomes a prop for what I'm teaching. Um, I'm not sure quite what that says, but it certainly went down well with the kids. <laughs> So you um, before we I started recording this, um, we spoke briefly about um, you wanting to well well half the the point of this fly site is to try and get out into the marginal areas and try and bring in uh, or generate interest in students who are in marginal communities and yeah trying to get them involved in particularly in physics. So there's still as well as presumably in science in general. Yeah, I mean science in general or STEM in general. Um, it's you know it's all part and parcel, and many of the same skills are required. But the idea being that for for kids who are in rural areas and can't get easy access to the big universities on a regular basis, um, that we can take some of those things out there with them. And the idea being, um, sort of one one of the big things is trying to show people that physics isn't scary. There's this weird notion that, you know, oh, you've got to be really, like, super smart to do physics. Well, it's no harder than any other science or maths or STEM subject at all. It's, yes, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different, but it's it's no more difficult at all. Um, and to trying to raise that stigma and show people that, you know, actually, it's, it's a subject for everybody. Everybody can do it. And it's not necessarily to try and make more people do physics at uni or make more physicists. But just open those doors for them and give them the options because they become so scared of something through ridiculous hearsay that they never actually give it a chance. Yeah. So trying to eradicate that stigma, abolish stereotypes. And, you know, 
Someone said, what does a physicist look like? And, you know, the number of people will think of somebody like Einstein. Well, yes, absolutely. He is a physicist, a very important one. But the last time I checked, you know, I wasn't an old man, um, <laughs> you know? And so even myself as an individual, I, I don't fit that stereotype. And I'm not unique in not fitting that stereotype. There are many, many female physicists and young physicists you know, there's there's a whole range. It's it's a subject that's for everybody, but yet there's this weird stigma attached to it that it's not. Um, so yeah, it's that that's part of it, trying to abolish that. And again, you know, providing opportunities for students who would otherwise miss out simply due to their geographical isolation. Yeah. Is there anything you'd you'd say to a potential student in 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 terms of something that you'd you'd say to encourage them to to consider a STEM field? Um. Particularly teenagers, but yeah, well, any any age really. One of the one of the ones that I, I have said to students, because sometimes you get kids at year 10 and it doesn't matter what you do or say, they do not want to do science. But that's fine, you know? We need we need people in all subjects and, you know, it'd be great to have more people with STEM skills, but it's not for everybody and you can't fight that. But one of the things that I'll jokingly say, but, it, you know, it does, it does hold true, is that even if you don't want to be a scientist ever, you still need to be scientifically literate. For the most part, when people post rubbish on Facebook, you know it's rubbish. <laughs> that when someone po- puts up a post about how dangerous DHMO is, that you actually know what that means and can play along with the joke. It's, you know, rather than getting all scared that the government's trying to poison you with dihydrogen monoxide, which, oh my god, what this is going to do? It can kill you. Correct, it can, but you'll also die without it. Um, <laughs> it's... You know, to, to eradicate that, to actually give people a real understanding, understand what things mean and be able to look at garbage when it's posted and recognise it for what it is. Hmm. So even if they've got no interest whatsoever, scientific literacy is still really important. Yeah. Um, for kids who are interested in STEM already, awesome. If you if you are excited by it, if you are enthused by it, then that's that's the biggest thing. If, if you are passionate about whatever, you are more likely to do well in it if you're passionate. Yes. Yes, it's a good, very good point to end on. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's been a delight and um, very interesting. Cheers. Well, folks, that's all for this episode of the Aurora Underground. I hope you've enjoyed it all. Please remember, if you have any questions for uh, Kate Ritchie from Educate, the uh, intellectual property solicitor, uh, who I'll be talking with uh, next episode, please send in your questions to me via the Southern Hemisphere Aurora group on Facebook. Until next time, may your skies be free of airglow.